Here's something surprising. I am a Canadian citizen, born here, raised here, but I have never played on an ice hockey team before. I can kind of skate, I can't stop, it's a minor detail. The town that I grew up in, small farm town about two hours north of the city, hockey was a huge part of the culture, but I'm from a family of five kids, and so there wasn't always the time or the money to have all five kids in hockey. The challenge with this is that most of my friends played hockey. They'd be doing practices multiple nights of the week, and then on the weekends they would go out to their tournaments and they would come back, and I felt like I'd kind of missed out on some opportunities. I socially had to make up for lost time, and so I was aware of that gap between my friends and I. Also, those same friends, during the Christmas break, they would go down south to Disneyland, Disney World, I don't know, in Florida. They would go with their families. I've never been with my family. We would stay home. Those same friends in the summer would go to their cottages and hang out there. My family, we have no cottage. We went to a trailer park. That's the kind of white culture that I come from. And so while I never grew up in poverty, I am very blessed, never went without. I have two parents and they, they raised me well and showed me the love of Christ. I was always aware that I didn't quite have as much as these friends of mine. They had new clothes, they had new shoes, they would show up to school with Game Boys and iPods. I shopped at Goodwill and Value Village before it was cool, before it was cool. And so I was aware of all this and I kind of felt a, a bit of insecurity, a bit of distance because of it. It kind of affected how I was. Now, one of my friends who went to Florida, who played on the hockey team, who had a little bit more than I did, very kind to me. He said to me, Sawyer, my hockey team is doing an end of the season party. You're welcome to come. I'd love it if you come with us. And so the party was at the biggest house in the farm town. It had a huge pool, a nice deck, a little waterfall thingy, chef's kiss. Inside, big TV, guitar hero, party mix. It was a, it was a wonderful evening. I was there for about an hour, starting to have a good time. And someone else from the hockey team walked up to me and said, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And in that moment, all of my social anxiety, all of my insecurity, all of my imposter syndrome, it was validated. And for many years after that, I kind of felt out of place in nicer venues, nice buildings, golf courses, hockey arenas. I felt like this wasn't the place for me. If I had friends and I found out that they came from wealthier backgrounds, I kind of thought, hmm, should I really be hanging out with this person? It created this, this strange situation in me and it took many years to get over it. It's gone now that I'm a pastor and making millions of dollars, <laughs> kidding. But I'm sure many of you walk around with scars from your past of things that people have said. Of course, we, we might not even be fully aware how we're formed by things that people have said to us, but I would suppose that some of the most hurtful things that have ever happened to you are from what people have said. Perhaps some of the most life-giving things that have happened to you are also things that people have said. But in retrospect, they don't feel the same, right? You can be having a great day, people saying wonderful things, and all it takes is one snide comment, and it ruins it all. Why? Words are powerful, of course. Words are also one of the primary tools that we use to navigate conflict. 
And since Easter, we as a church have been going through God's word and trying to study and learn and grow and understand how we can be peacemakers. Why? Well, as uh, we've kind of been saying the past few weeks, a mark of our age right now is its presence, is the presence of widespread tension, division, anger, and animosity at levels that are really high. I read this about a year ago that during the, the most recent election in the United States, the level of political division was so high, it was at the same point that it was right before the Civil War. Make of that what you will. But we in Canada tend to ride the waves that are made by our southern friends, so it might be indicative. Also, I learned this this week, that if you take red ants and black ants, if you put them in the same jar together, nothing happens. They get along just fine. But if you take that jar and you shake it up, they start freaking out. They think that the ants are attacking them and they actually attack each other. And I feel like this past year, someone's been shaking my jar and it looks like the ants around me are starting to attack each other. So we're looking at how can we as God's people be agents of redemption, reconciliation, and peace in a time of anger, frustration, and animosity. Last week, we looked at listening well, how we can listen to learn and how we can listen to love. This week, we're looking at speaking well. And to do so, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we're going to be going through verses 25 to 32. This week, we're looking at speaking well, how we as a church, before we can walk well, have to learn how to talk well. And in this portion, if you look at all of chapter 4, there's a little thing on top. It says, unity in the body of Christ. We're looking at unity in the body of Christ, specifically today, how Paul says we're supposed to deal with anger and negative emotion and how we deal with that influences how we speak to those around us. So I'm going to stand up for this. I'm going to be reading from verses 25 to 32. Please follow along. <clears throat> Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as it is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Almost done. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. We're going to be back and forth, moving around in this for a while. So I'd uh, encourage you to keep this open. Paul opens this passage with a big overarching claim. Similar to the Proverbs that we studied last week, the Proverbs showed the way of the foolish man and the way of the wise man. Paul is also contrasting between how Christians ought to walk and how we ought not to walk. How we used to walk before life in Christ and how we're called to walk now with our life in Christ. And he gives this big vision right at the top. He says, speak the truth to your neighbor. And then he says, be angry and do not sin. And that's a little bit 
surprising to me. Paul is taking it for granted that humans, Christians included, are going to be angry. And that's not the focus of what he's talking about. He's saying, be angry and do not sin. He's not saying, don't be angry. And that's surprising to me because uh, there's, you know, Christian circles. I came from one that kind of model that anger itself is sinful. That Christians ought not be angry. Yet Paul is taking it for granted like it's a non-issue. And it's also surprising uh, because that's not in the Bible that Christians shouldn't be angry. Of the 700 or so times that we see anger mentioned in the Bible, around 500 are God being angry and God can't sin, and the other 200 are people being angry. So Paul's taking it for granted. Anger in and of itself is not the problem. Saying Christians ought not to be angry, that's not in the book. That's things like uh, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness, also not in the book. Or God helps those who help themselves, that's also not in the book. So, you know, if we're just bringing in things that aren't in the Bible, but claiming them as scripture, I've got some quotes from Nacho Libre and the Godfather I would like to incorporate, but that's not helpful either. So it's good at the outset to keep these things distinct and clear. Anger is not the problem. He says, be angry and do not sin. I'm angry right now. That's besides the point. Being angry is not the problem, but how we handle negative emotion. And this actually seems to be true even in other facets of life. I'm reading all these uh, marriage books, pre-marriage things, and a couple things I've found. One of them is that kind of the consensus amongst marriage counselors that I've seen is that the number one predictive feature The number one determining feature of whether or not a marriage will succeed is not if the couple fights, but how the couple fights. Is their conflict constructive or destructive? That's an interesting point. And so it it makes sense that scripture would affirm this as well. So too here, we see the importance of handling negative emotion properly. Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it fester. Don't mull it over. You know what that's like. Someone has bothered you. You think about it for three days. You start psychoanalyzing the person. You've got their whole life story. You know everything that their parents did wrong. And one small thing blows up into extraordinary proportions. Paul says this is unfit behavior of the Christian. Don't let the sun go down. Don't let the day move on. And you can take that in a broad sense or in a narrow sense. But here's the takeaway. The Christian is not to remain in this position. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first is this. When we hold on to our anger, we control it. But when we give our anger to God, he controls it. So we are to deal with it, but not just in any way. But first, Paul talks about the dangers the ramifications, the consequences of if we let anger fester, if we let anger sit. The first consequence is this. Anger rots inside of you. You think I'm being a little strong with my language? No, not the case. Paul uses this language itself. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And literally, that word in the original translation, it means rancid, rotten, decaying language. Let none of that come out of your mouth. There's a stench to this speech. A stench of what? A stench of anger that's been sitting around. Jesus actually talks about this as well. Luke 6, 45, he says this. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth 
speaks. And so if we don't deal with our anger, it rots in our heart. You may remember a few weeks ago, uh, I talked about a dichotomy between peace faking and peace breaking. Peace faking is acting like it's not there. And if we act like it's not there, things get worse. Things tend to fester. Entropy kicks in. In a Genesis 3 world, in a fallen world, things left on their own don't get better, they get worse. Imagine, imagine if you left your house on its own for a year and you came back. What would you find? Well, there's black mold on the walls, the ceiling is leaking, raccoons have moved in, they're spray painting pentagrams on the floor. It's a mess. <laughs> so too with your heart. If we let things sit, they're going to move from bad to worse. Anger rots in our heart and it comes up, it overflows into how we speak. That's reason one why we ought to deal with our anger properly. Second is this, and this is perhaps an interesting point. It's not how I think. Perhaps it's not how we as Christians in the West tend to naturally think. The next thing that Paul says is this. When we hold on to our anger, when we let the sun go down on our anger, it gives the devil an opportunity. An opportunity. Some translations say that it gives the devil a foothold. A foothold is a secure position from which progress can be made. If you're a climber, you're looking for a foothold because that's what you're going to use to propel yourself further along towards your goal. Some people speak of this like a base camp. So unsettled anger, anger that's sitting and rotting in the heart. Paul is saying this, the devil sees that and he says, oh, I can work with that. This will help me. I like how things look here. This will help me advance my purposes. And this raises an interesting question. It gives the devil an opportunity. Well, an opportunity to do what? There's many things. First, it could be just simply to divide the church. That seems like not the Lord's business, but something that the devil is actively working towards. That's reasonable. In Scripture, we see Satan referred to as, as several names, as many names. One of them is the father of lies. Another one is the accuser. And so perhaps with a foothold in our hearts, sitting on this anger, it could give Satan uh, an opportunity, a foothold in influencing us to believe false things, false things about this person, the source of our anger. Perhaps it could cause us to accuse them of things that are not true as well, of fellow Christians, things that are harmful, things that are destructive, things that do not build them up. Do you know what this is like? Do you know what this is like to have this spoken over you? Do you know what it's like to think these things, to speak these things over others as well? The pain of lies and condemnation. Let me, let me share some of these things with you that have happened to me. During the last 12 months, just, just during the last 12 months, I have had these things spoken over me by those who claim the name of Christ. These are just some of the greatest hits. <clears throat> You are a failure. Straightforward. You are incompetent. All of the people around you and your mentors know this. So that was, that was one of them. This is another one. You're not a real Christian. You're an idiot. As if those things are incompatible. It's besides the point. <laughs> uh, you are dense as 
Can't finish that sentence. God is angry with you. You're a false prophet. Those are some things I've had spoken over me in the past 12 months. I'd rather go 12 rounds with Mike Tyson than another 12 months of hearing this, right? And I'm a, I'm a young pastor, I've been at this four months, probably delivered 15 sermons in my life. Do you think some of those thoughts are already swirling in my head? How many of those things do you think landed right on target? I don't want to tell you. So we can speak God's truth over someone or our anger can be used as an opportunity for the devil to speak his lies over them. So let's, let's look at a couple of these because I'm sure there's some, some crossover uh, to what's been spoken over you in your life as well. Someone says to you, you are a failure. You are a failure. And we question, is that how God sees me or is this a lie that's being spoken over me? Well, you are a failure. Okay, but I'm in Christ and he's no failure. I was a failure, now I'm in him, now I'm doing better. Okay, you are incompetent. Hey, that may be true, but when I stand before God, I'm not going to be presenting my resume, I'm going to be presenting Christ's. So you want to talk about me, I want to talk about him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But do you see this extra work, this extra labor that we may be causing people, that we are caused when lies are being spoken over us? So God forbid the devil may use your anger, your unchecked anger, as an opportunity to accuse those and to lie to those around you. That's a big danger that Paul warns about. The next danger that Paul warns about, which is also something that I really wouldn't have thought of before, is this. It grieves the spirit. Unchecked anger, corrupting talk, rotting anger in the heart, grieves the spirit, the Holy Spirit. James talks about this. James 3, 8 to 10. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So it grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in me does not hate the Holy Spirit in you. God is not pleased by this anger. We see actually similar language used in Genesis 6, right at the start of the the story of Noah and the ark. It says, God sees how his people were living and he was grieved in his heart as well. So God, the Spirit, sees this anger, this discord, this rotting hatred of the heart and it hurts his heart. We've given up peace. We've given up joy. We've decided to handle things on our own, and it's led to destruction. It breaks the Father's heart. It grieves the Spirit. My mom, God bless her, uh, she raised four boys. Youngest girl is a sister, but there was a time when it was just four boys. And we were like rock'em, sock'em robots all hours of the day, always going at it, clocking each other, clobbering each other. I regret nothing. 
but I see how in hindsight that perhaps was not the best way to treat my brothers growing up. I don't want to talk about it. So my mother, she would, she would do things to us. It would break her heart when we would fight. She would make us hold hands with each other and stay there for like an hour, but she didn't know. The other hand was free. So it was kind of like a, like a boxing drill. She would make us write. She had like these uh, washable window markers. There's the Proverbs. How good is it when brothers live together in unity? That's all she wanted. If you want to hurt my mom, just have her kids go at it. If you want to bless her, if you want to give her a great gift for, for Mother's Day, for Christmas, for her birthday, just have all of her kids together in unity. Same too with the heart of God the Father. It grieves him when his people are in a state of division, unchecked anger, rotting away, giving a foothold to the devil to work in our hearts, speaking lies and accusations over each other as well. That is the third danger of leaving anger unchecked in our hearts. So what we see here is that we cannot be making peace in the world if we are busy making war in our hearts. Let me repeat that again. We as God's people, agents of redemption and reconciliation and love, cannot be making peace in the world if we are making war in our heart. So we're not to sit on our anger. Well, how do we deal with it then? There's two things that Paul says. One, we act according to our new nature. If you remember, probably two months ago, we were still in the early stages of our Roman series, and Pastor Lucas talked about this concept of total depravity. And this is how he explained it. He said, if you look at a house, uh, if the house is our heart, termites have infested the house. The house doesn't need a makeover. The house needs to be completely redone. It's structurally unstable. You don't need a new coat of paint. You need a new internal structure and foundation. That is total depravity. It is the doctrine that humanity is infected and affected by sin. Everything that we do, thought, word, deed, and action is tainted away from God's will and towards destruction. Then those who are in Christ have been grafted in. We receive his imputed righteousness. We receive a new nature, not like our own. So we are now not walking according to our sinful nature, but our new nature is those who are in the family of God, those who have received the spirit in their hearts as well. So Paul tells us to act according to this. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So sin may define some of what you do, but now your new nature defines who you are. It means that you are new and Jesus is going to conclude by making you perfect. That's the first part. And now he kind of builds on this. With this new nature that we have received, it kind of brings us to point two, we replace old patterns with new ones. Let's turn back to Ephesians again. Ephesians 4, right at the end, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Paul just lays it out. All of this has to be put away. Bitterness is the resentment that leaves a sour attitude of animosity towards a person. It's a harbored resentment that prevents reconciliation. That's bitterness. Anger, we're talking about unrighteous anger, the explosive red-hot anger. The word is thymus, like a thermometer. This is the unstable anger that explodes on people. 
Wrath is pouring out of vindictive words or actions. Clamor is causing scenes that disturb the peace. Blasphemy is speaking evil over someone. And malice is a catch-all term for all evil. All of this must be put away, put behind you, and be replaced with what? With speech that is reflective of our new nature. We only speak language that is three things, he says. Good for building up, fits the occasion, and is, uh, pardon me, and gives grace to those who hear. Later on, at the really end of the chapter, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So words that are used by us in our anger are to be used to build up the offender. Isn't that counterintuitive? Isn't that countercultural? I don't care what culture you come from. That is countercultural. In your anger, do not sin. Only speak words that are good for building up. Fits the occasion. That may give grace. That's not how my heart is wired. All of the energy that might have been released in blowing up, that's clamor, or clamming up, keeping it inside, bitterness and rotting, are to be poured out and used in edifying I I keep saying used in ways that are building up, but those are Paul's words, so I'll keep using them. Words are to be used that build up and not tear down. Let me tell you this in my own life. Many times I've been corrected, uh, rebuked. Rebuked is a hard term. And the ones that stick out the most are when people pull me aside and they've said to me, hey man, what you said back there what you did back there, it's beneath you. You're better than that. And do you see how that person could be angry at me? People have been angry at me. And they're addressing me in a way that's actually building me up. They're telling me, this behavior is unfit of you. You're actually better than this. You're called to a higher standard of this. Don't settle for less. And you don't know how that person would receive it. But do you see how that is so much better than going up to the person and saying, why are you so stupid? Have you always been like this or did it kind of develop over time? Do you see how one would be profitable and one would not be? One is fitting to the occasion and one gives grace and one speaks lies over people, speaks accusations and malice. It's easy to see. It's hard to do. So let's, let's bring it home. Here's a question. Where have you let the sun go down on your anger? Where do you need to confront it and confess it? Where have you made peace with it? Where have you given it free rent in your heart? Where have have you let it stay? Where is it rotting and overflowing in how you speak? Here's the second question. This one's more terrifying. Who are you giving an opportunity with your anger? Are you giving an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work through you? Are you giving an opportunity for God to work in this person's life, to build them up, to rebuke them in love? Or are you giving an opportunity for the devil to have a foothold in your heart and in his church to accuse others and to speak lies over them? So let's let's conclude with this. This sermon, you might think right now, Sawyer, 
The sermon seems to be a lot about anger. I thought we were talking about talking, about how to speak well. But if we look at this portion of scripture, let me just remind you this. Paul is talking about how we deal with negative emotion. And if we deal with it in an ungodly way, it will come forth, it will overflow from the heart in toxic speech. But if we deal with it according to our new nature in Christ, it will come out in ways that build people up as fit the occasion and are filled with grace. So this isn't just a message, a little 30-minute TED Talk on behavior modification. Here's three ways that you can talk differently, you know, to make your conversations go better. That is appropriate and good, yes, But God isn't just interested with your behavior, he's interested in your heart. If you start with the heart problem, the other things will overflow from it. It's harder to do up front, but it's a more natural transformation later on. So let's let's go to the Father right now. I would like to lead you through a prayer of release, just modeling how we can pray for strength, how we can give our anger to God and ask to be empowered by him. So would you close your eyes? We've been doing it a lot in these sermons, but it's really been blessing me. Breathe in, breathe out, and think about where you've let the sun go down on your anger. What needs to be confronted and confessed. And I want you to repeat after me, whether out loud or in your mind, it's up to you. God, I'm angry. I'm frustrated, I'm upset, and I need your help. I confess that you are all-powerful, almighty, and all-knowing. Help me to take comfort in the fact that you are the just judge, and vengeance is not mine, but yours. Lord, give me a spirit that is slow to anger, and quick to forgive. Help me forgive this person just as you have forgiven me. Help me to love this person just as you have loved me. Help me to see this person just as you see me. I release my anger to you. Please help me speak with grace to build this person up and not tear them down. Amen.